Okay, folks, turn with me again to Second uh, Corinthians into chapter two. Let's let's pray. Father, as we come around your word again this morning, we long to meet with you here. Lord, speak to us clearly. Speak to us in a way that each one of us will hear you, hear from you in a way that's undeniable. Lord, teach us from your word. Teach us that we might grow to be more like you in our understanding. Scripture calls on us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hosea warns us that people perish for our lack of knowledge. Lord, we do not want to spiritually fade away and waste away because we are intellectually malnourished followers. Yet we know that knowledge can puff up while love builds up. So Lord, teach us this morning that we may grow in knowledge, but also that we might grow in our ability to love and to love you better and to love more fully. And we ask this in your precious name. Amen. My grand Kennedy, my paternal grandfather, was a great godly man. He passed away about 13, 14 years ago. Um, just as I was starting into full-time Christian uh, work, and maybe this sounds a wee bit strange, but I probably miss him more now than because I know what I'm missing out on than what I did 20 years ago before he got sick. Uh, whenever I was mid-teens and more interested in girls than, than God. Um, but my granddad was a great one for little wee sayings and quotes and things that I still remember to this day. I never thought I, I would remember them, but sure enough, once I started uh, writing this, I thought, actually, I remember this one, I remember this one, I remember this one. They had a way of ingraining in me. Uh, one that he used to say was a little Scottish poem that I'm sure is familiar to some. It says, to live above with saints we loved will certainly be glory. But to live below with the ones we know, that's another story. Now, I don't think the Apostle Paul knew that one, but I'm pretty sure he would agreed with it. Because uh, when it comes to the church in Corinth, it was a different story altogether. They had an issue, a, a history of not getting along with each other. Paul still loved them deeply, which is what this letter primarily wants to affirm. But boy, they didn't make it easy for him. They really didn't make it easy. And all you have to do is read 1 Corinthians for just the list of things that is constantly going on and how they kind of always have their, button, their hand on the self-destruct button. You ever hear someone say, they have a face that only a mother could love? Well, this was a church that only God and Paul could love. Because, boy, they had a lot of stuff going on. And yet Paul raised them and he loved them deeply. 1 Corinthians 5 gives us an insight into one of the issues that they had. There was a guy who was prominent in the church who had a relationship with his fa father's wife, a stepmom. And Paul turns around and says, look, this is incestuous. Not only do, do the Old Testament Jewish law say that this is wrong, but even today in the Roman world, for all the stuff that they allow, even they say that that's illegal. So you're allowing stuff that no one else in society would allow. Not even heathen people would do this. And you're boasting about this? Guys, come on. This is nothing to brag about. And Paul was trying to show them in 
First Corinthians uh, and in bits in, in, in between, that loving and tolerating are two different things. You're not loving someone by tolerating their sin. Corinth had failed to realize this, and the amazing thing is we're at the same point really in our society today that makes the same mistake that says, well, if you say that you love them, then you have to back them 100% in anything and everything that they do. And, and if you were to say, well, I don't agree with that, well, you don't support me. I feel so let down by you. You said you loved me. But that, there, there is a difference. Because yes, we should support people that we love that are pursuing things that are good. That is loving. But to support and encourage people in things that are harmful is not loving. It's cruel. And so as we start in the Second Corinthians uh, chapter 2, Paul is coming back, I believe, to this guy from 1 Corinthians 5. I, some might say, and maybe your notes in your Bible will say he's referring to the false teachers who have repented, but these first eight verses are written to, to an individual, or referring to an individual, not a group. So I think it's the guy from 1 Corinthians 5. I can't prove it beyond reasonable doubt. There's a reason for that. But it would seem to me that this guy from 1 Corinthians 5 has repented. He's been disciplined by the church, maybe even ostracized, uh, excommunicated for a while. But he's repented. And Paul is saying, okay, now is the time to love. Now is the time to receive him and make a big deal about it. Now is the time to heal and to restore. Because now he has repented. And because he has repented, the church must begin the process of bringing in the one they have cast out. You're never more like God when we forgive totally and completely. It is hard, but it is essential that their repentance is acknowledged and then encouragement is given to them to grow in Christ. But for that healing to happen, we must first be willing to confront sin. Truth is, no one likes to be the guy who does that. Having said that, churches are full of people who love pointing out faults in other people. That's a different thing. That's not done in love. That's not done with compassion. It's a very different thing to talk about someone and their sin than to go and lovingly address sin in someone's life with them. It's hard. It is hard to do it. But let's, let's see what Paul has to say. Let's go from the previous verse, the last verse in chapter 1, verse 24. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did that, that painful letter that he, that he wrote to them. I wrote as I did so that when I come, I may not suffer pain from those who have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. Not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have. So Paul here is recognizing that there is an issue that needs addressed, that he wanted to do it right away, but now that the man has repented, 
Notice he's not identifying him. Notice he's not talking about the sin specifically. He doesn't want to drag it up again. Part of repentance or responding to repentance is leaving the past behind. He doesn't want to point the finger again. He doesn't want to embarrass someone who's listening to the letter being read out by pointing it all out, by dragging it all up again. Folks, there's nothing worse than having your lowest points dragged up and beaten like a stick over you every time you try and do something. And Paul is wanting to tell the church how to respond to this man who is wanting to be restored. It's about lifting up without dragging what holds him down with you. He's not downplaying the seriousness of sin. Let's be clear. He's not downplaying the seriousness of sin. What he's doing here is emphasizing the importance to move on from the sin and make sure restoration is full restoration, not partial restoration. Paul wants to celebrate, not fixate. The man had repented, so the matter was closed. Paul was prepared to drop it, and his attitude towards the church is to get them to move towards joyfulness in this matter. Like the father welcoming home the prodigal son. The, the son shows his willingness to repent by coming back to the father. And, and his heart and his condition is obvious. And so the father runs to him. He doesn't say, right, well, I'm going to see how this goes. Let's hear what he has to say for himself. Let's make sure he knows that it's painful. Let's make sure he knows that he's cost me a lot of money. Let's make sure he knows that he's disappointed us. No, the father runs and grabs him and hugs him and doesn't wait for the explanation, but says, we're going to celebrate. Let's get a ring on him. Let's get sandals on. Let's get a robe on him. Let's kill the fattest calf and celebrate. Joy as part of repentance. So often we try to fix relationships and only then once they are fixed will we allow there for there to be joy in that relationship. And yet that never works because, right, well, we'll try to have a couple of coffees and then we'll say, "Mm, well, this isn't real. It's never going to be the same. Well, of course it's not going to be the same because before there was joy in your relationship. Repentance is enough reason to celebrate. The reason that it doesn't always feel the way it ought to feel again is because we've held back our joy. It's part of the restoration process. And Paul here says, look, you have to reverse that order. Joyful, joyfully receive them whenever they repent. And as you repent and as you celebrate in that repentance, those relationships will be restored. Because joy is there. At the heart of real fellowship is joy. Joy is not a product of fellowship. It is a cause of fellowship. And fellowship then leads to discipleship. And discipleship then leads to maturity. And maturity leads to godliness. But it has to have that starting point of being joyfully together. And Paul here is saying, look, it should be joy. But so often it is heartbreaking. This happens when you love people deeply. It will happen uh, in church where you will have people who will hurt you because you've loved them, you've let them in. And there will be people who bring you so much joy because you've loved them and you've let them in. John, in John 3, uh, no, sorry, in, in 3 John 1 says, I have no greater joy than this to hear that my children are walking in truth. Joy. 
to, to, for me to, to minister to people, to spend time with them, to pour uh, years of prayer and effort into them, and then watching them come to repentance and growing and flourishing it brings so much joy. And for people in the church, you'll have that same feeling. Take, take likes of Matthew Hamilton, who grew up in the church, and some of you were his campaigners leaders. Some of you looked after him in Bible class, junior Bible class, senior Bible class. Some of you um, got bitten by him and kicked by him and, and all the rest of it along the way, right? And yet not only then did he grow up become a, a wonderful part of the church, an active member, but, but, but in heavily involved in the youth work and involved in so many other parts, became a deacon, is now serving the Lord full-time in Aberdeen. What joy for us as a church to do that. Tyler, playing the drums, grew up through the church, now a deacon. What joy. Well, with Evan singing up here this morning, joy. Joy to see people growing and seeing things happen. It's like, yes, this is brilliant. And Sophie and Ben and others doing kids' talks. It's brilliant. And for those here who have been part of that, this is the feeling of joy that Paul is speaking about here. Now, the inverse is also true. To pour that time in and to weep and to counsel and to pray and then they just leave the church or they, and, and stop going anywhere or, or it's heartbreaking or, or they, they divorce and they separate or, you know, they, they, they go to another church and then you hear that they're saying, oh, you know, nobody cared at AAC or nobody, and you're kind of going, what? It hurts. Of course we did. And it hurts as deeply as the joy is profound. Paul was hurt by this guy from 1 Corinthians 5. He was hurt by his sin. It was vile. It damaged the whole church. But Paul refuses to linger on the sin. He wants to rejoice in his repentance. Joy and sin are mutually exclusive. One cannot be where the other is. I mean, yes, sin can make you smile for a while. That's why people keep doing it. But you're dealing with the law of diminishing returns. Real, lasting joy can only be found in intimacy with God, in fellowship with the believers, and moving forward in the kingdom of God. And so it was Paul's desire to get the church to joy, which is what pushed him to love them in a way that was, okay, yes, confrontational. Yes, did cause uh, tension, but it was honest. And real love requires honesty, not just sentimentality where you pretend that everything's okay. By the way, so many relationships break up and don't work, marriages don't work because people are looking for sentimentality. They want everything just to feel warm and fuzzy all the time. And when that doesn't work out, then they throw out the marriage, they throw out the relationship, they throw out the friendship. But honesty is a requirement of love. Real fellowship, real love, real friendship requires us to care enough to call people out of, on their sin in a way that moves them away from harm and back into the path of righteousness. Psalm, uh, sorry, not Psalm, Proverbs 27, uh, verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Do you love someone deeply enough? Paul didn't write the severe letter from being angry or you know, he was having an off day. He wasn't very apostoly that day. No. Rather, it's coming from having his joy ripped from him and being brokenhearted. But now it's dealt with. 
Uh, and he says, my heart is just bursting with love for you. Oh, I'm so happy. Uh, and now their joy is full. So now, if anyone ha has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, notice it's singular, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. See, calling out sin is one thing. But if that is all you wish your church leadership to do, that will be a church that leaves a trail of destruction and devastation in its path, and nobody will want to be a part of such a church. It might feel good lifting yourself up because you're pushing everyone else down, but that's not the godly way to respond. Paul is so quick to move the conversation forward. Okay, the sin is dealt with. Our brother has repented. Now, let's not leave him out in the cold where he might be overwhelmed. This is as important a process of church discipline as any other stage. It is just as important as any other stage. But notice verse 6, this guy from 1 Corinthians 5, it wasn't unanimously condemned by the church. Not everyone agreed with Paul that it was a sin. Not everyone agreed that this guy should be confronted. But we are told that it was a majority. Now, I have spent a lifetime in church. And I can honestly say that I have never, ever, ever, ever seen church discipline administered unanimously. Never. There will always be some who want to sweep it under the carpet peace at any price. Let's not ruffle any feathers. What if people leave the church? So let's, let's avoid it. There'll be others who will defend the person, who will accuse others of lying, manufacturing. They will take sides. And then there'll be others who will say, look, those who are without sin may cast the first stone. You know, how are you, who are you to say that your sin is less than their sin? Why shouldn't we all be excommunicated? Because we've all sinned. Now, the truth is that while opinions will always differ on what punishment fits the crime, as it were, the fact is that it was Christ himself who gave us these guidelines in Matthew 18. We confront it one-on-one. And, and that should happen regularly, and it should happen swiftly, and it shouldn't just be the end of it. If not, you take a witness. You take a mutual friend, ideally, who is trusted by both parties, and if it doesn't go any further, you take it to the church leadership. And if they still refuse to repent, then that person is to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, according to Jesus. And so often people are afraid to follow through on this. And pastors are the most guilty because we're the ones who have to have the conversation. <laughs> and we're all very hardline when it's hypothetical. But then whenever it's us, we, a lot of the time we check it out. But the joy of the Lord and the blessings of the Lord cannot coexist in the same space as the rejection of the Lord, which is what sin is. Sin is to reject God for who he is. So how can you expect God to move and God to bless if at the same time, in the same space, we're saying, yeah, but we don't want him. We want the blessings, but we don't want you. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. 
the guy who committed the incest has benefited from having a church who loved him enough and having Paul who loved him enough to call him out on his sin, to confront him. And look, nobody likes getting told off. Nobody likes having it pointed out to them. I remember as a kid, I, you know, I got smacked as a kid, okay? And I never, ever thought at that time whenever I was getting whacked, I went, ah, ah oh, thank you, I'm so loved. <laughs> that, that didn't happen. All right. I never thought at that moment, wow, how wonderful my parents are. But looking back on it now, I think, yeah, I, I deserved that. I needed that. And I'm glad my parents loved me enough to hurt my feelings because in that moment, I needed my feelings to be hurt to get me out of my sinful mindset that I was in to keep me from harm. Remember Hebrews 12 says, My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, but nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Listen, if God's correcting you, take that as a sign that he loves you. And he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating your sons. Wow, he's treating your sons. Verse 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline may hurt now. It may not be easy now. It might be awkward now, but good parenting, good church leadership, good friendship is willing to hurt someone's feelings for the sake of keeping them from coming to harm. Peace at any price is not a biblical command, but to speak the truth in love is. It's Ephesians 4.15. Now, I could rant about this for a while, but truth without love is brutality. Love without truth is hypocrisy. You've got to have both. Otherwise, you're part of the problem, not the solution. But anyway, we need to move on. So Paul says, okay, it's dealt with, so we need to reassure the person of your love. I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Okay, so don't just assume that this person knows that you care. Go out of your way to let him know. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and, and know whether you're obedient and everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Okay, Paul highlights an, an important factor here. We, we don't just forgive for the person who is sin's sake, but we must also forgive for the Lord's sake. Look at verse 9. The reality is this, the man's sin was not just against the people who he had wronged in the church, but was also against a grieving Savior. Church discipline is not just an obligation to a wayward brother or sister, but it is a matter of obedience to a holy God. If the church allows sin to creep in and to slide, if we allow acceptable sins to infiltrate our lives and we whitewash situations to such an extent that we refuse to face up to problems just because we're scared of losing people or we're scared of offending people or we don't want... We're grieving the heart of God. But there is a third reason. Verse 11. It's not just his sake or the Lord's sake, but for the church's sake as well, that we use discipline in the church because we are not ignorant of what Satan wants to do. Satan wants to destroy the church. Satan wants to destroy the church by divide and conquer. Sin causes division. It causes gossip, spreads rumors, 
creates bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness, and hurts, and all that while causing division among the people, and while holding on to that, while restricting our effectiveness in the gospel, robs us of intimacy and fellowship, and robs us of our joy, and robs us of any ability we have to make a difference for God. Sin divides a church, but to discipline to love each other and to love God so ferociously that you cannot help but go to someone with tears in your eyes and to show that you care, to show that you love by breaking your heart with them and longing for them to move towards Christ and away from sin. Such a love, even if it hurts, even if it takes a long time, it will deepen relationships. It will deepen intimacy. And that's the kind of church that will thrive in the long run. Don't just look for sentimentality in a church when everything's rosy and everything's easy and everything's warm and fuzzy and all the problems are just slipped away. It's fake. At surface level, find a church that is bonded over the trials and tribulations and care so passionately for each other that they've got the scars to prove it. Satan will not make inroads into such a church, or at least not for very long, because that's family. Not just a collection of people who sing songs in the same room. And so we confront sin in love. We pray in love, and when there is repentance, we explode in joyful restoration. Now, it feels then like Paul changes tact here, but he doesn't. He's not on a different subject. He's just going about it in a slightly different way. The big picture is that everything we do, including how we confront people in sin, how we conduct our business inside as a church in terms of discipline, tells the world about Jesus. And so we should forgive, we should love, we should restore because it screams out to the world about who God is and how we serve him and how he calls us to live. And yes, it can be hard, but the truth is it is a privilege for us to follow him and tell the world about him. So let's, let's finish off the, the chapter. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not. Like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. These verses are a wonderful description of Paul's insight and how he understands ministry and what it should look like. And he highlights five privileges. Let me just give you the bullet points, okay? Number one is Paul's confident hope. God it always leads us, regardless of the trials, regardless of the tribulations, regardless of the circumstances you find yourself in, God is in control. Paul never loses the sense of wonder that the God who knows him, who knows his sin, who knows his shames, who knows his mistakes, who knows his fragilities, and knows how he messes up, would still want to use such a man to glorify him. Paul goes, that's amazing. First Timothy 1 uh, says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he has judged me faithful, appointing me to this service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. 
And the grace of the Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ may display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. I must screw up. God can use me. He's in control. What a privilege. Second one. We are led, not only in just led, but we're led in triumph. The picture here is of a Roman procession going through Rome. Whenever a general was successful and defeated of uh, 5,000 enemy soldiers, he got a procession through Rome to the Circus Maximus. He rode a golden chariot and his legion behind him and their spoils of war behind them, the, the captive soldiers and stuff that they looted. This is the picture of our life in Christ. Not that we claim any glory, but it's all for the general that we follow. Rather than trying to jostle for the glory ourselves, we call out to the people standing by, look at our great general. Look at what our commander-in-chief has accomplished. Look at the victory that's already been won. Look at what God has done. Look, look. And we're just pointing people to Jesus. Look at the victory that's already been won. From victory to victory, we march. Folks, listen, I know sometimes the Christian walk sometimes feels like a battle. Truth is, it is always a battle. But the war's outcome has already been decided. Christ has won. That's what we talked about at, at the children's talk. Christ has won. Number three, there's this sweet aroma. We have influence. The soldiers, as they march in this procession, uh, released incense to cover up the smell of the battlefield, the smell of the horses, which was a good thing, but also it was to create an aroma that drew people towards the procession, that drew people in to join the celebration. And Paul here is saying, my ministry, wherever I go, I'm just following the commander-in-chief. And as I go, I want to release this aroma that draws in passers-by, that draws in people busy with other things that weren't aware of the battle, who weren't aware of the victory. I want to draw them into the wonder and awe of the victory of Jesus. Roman 10 says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. What a privilege we have to proclaim this message to those who do not know about what Christ has done, to draw them in. In my head, I have this picture of, you know whenever someone's cooking your favorite meal in the kitchen, and it doesn't matter where you are in the house, you kind of, ooh, and you kind of just, your eyes light up, and you're just drawn to it by the smell, the aroma. So too, should that sweet smell of how we live our lives bring hungry souls to Christ. How many respond, how big our church gets, isn't the issue. Paul is simply rejoicing the fact that he gets to do it. What a privilege we have to share this message. Now, the Roma would have meant different things to different people. For the soldiers, it means victory. For those who were defeated, it means death ultimately at the hands of the gladiators or the lions in the arena. But the aroma also would have ascended to the highest throne in Rome. The emperor himself smelled the aroma and was pleased by the victory that had been won in his name. 
Folks, our victory in Christ, the aroma we release, is not just for the sake of evangelism. It is for the joy and delight of God himself. It is our act of worship. Paul, in chapter 5 of this letter, will go on to say, Therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Chapter 5, verse 9. In fact, he repeats that message in most of his letters in Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians. It goes on and on and on. How does it please God, though? This aroma we release is the expression of his mercy to repentant sinners. And as God breathes in this aroma, it is the smell of the victory of Jesus on the cross and triumph over sin. We are part of that. What a privilege to live a life that is pleasing to God. Last one. The privilege of God's power. Who is sufficient of these things? Robert kind of hinted at that while, when we were saying when he read from Revelation. Who are we for, for such a God? Who are we for such a privilege? Who are we for such an honor? Who can really say we're up for the task of sharing this message with the world? I'll put my hand up and say, not me. But isn't that the essence of privilege? Isn't that the essence of, of the honor? What a joy, what an honor, what a privilege we have been given. What a task. So who is sufficient? Well, tonight we'll go into chapter 3. And in verse 5 of chapter 3, he says, well, our sufficiency is of God. Who's sufficient? <laughs> None of us. But God makes us. It's through Christ that we can do this. We cannot do this in and of ourselves. And sadly, so many Christians flounder and flail around because they'll say, oh, you know, I can't speak. I can't do this. I can't share. I can't speak. And they come up with all these excuses. I can't, I can't, I can't. Well, guess what? None of us can. None of us are sufficient for these things. The mistake is that we forget that we're not supposed to do it in of our own sufficiency, but we are supposed to do it with the power that comes from God. And we pick it up there tonight. But get this train of thought flowing through from chapter 1. Paul is saying that sin has a powerful impact on you and the people around you. Yet God's power through the work of repentance is even more glorious. He is the God of all comfort. He does not waste our sorrows. He doesn't waste our trials. So let's show the world how great he is by responding by fierce love and compassion. Let's show the world how great he is. Let's show the world the difference he makes in us by the aroma that we release. Let's create such an atmosphere that the world cannot help but be drawn to this procession and see Christ in us, the hope of glory. Jesus himself said it in Matthew 5, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray.